unless we can be enabled by the concurrence of the states to participate of the fruits of the revolution and enjoy the essential benefits of civil society, it will be a subject of regret that so much blood and treasure have been lavished for no purpose and that so many sacrifices have been made in vain. The words of General George Washington. And this is the Guardians of the Republic. Hello, I'm Patrick Murray from the Monmouth University Poll, and my co-host is Ian Kahn from the TV series Turn, Washington Spies. On this episode of the podcast, we will take a look at current events this past weekend, and then we will review last week's presidential debate in an extended hot take segment, and we'll wrap up with our Guardian of the Week honors. But first, Patrick, what do you have on the polling front? Well, because of this weekend's events, I went looking for some recent polling on the gun issue, and I found a Marist poll from July uh, and a Quinnipiac poll from May. Both of them found that six in 10 Americans support banning assault weapons, and, and that's been pretty consistent for the past few years. But when you drill down into the numbers, there is a difference. Uh, while 87% of Democrats and 63% of independents support uh, banning assault weapons, and this is from Quinnipiac, we look, it's only 39% of Republicans and 41% of gun owners, regardless of what party they're in, uh, who support that. Uh, So that gives you an overall kind of idea of the politics. But as we know, there are real important differences depending on whether you own a gun or not, but also whether you're a member of the NRA or not, if you are a gun owner. And we did a poll at Monmouth uh, just over a year ago where we actually broke down our results in that way. And so, for example, we asked a question, do you support background checks uh, for all gun purchases? Uh, 89% of non-gun owners, 78% of gun owners who weren't in the NRA, and 69% of NRA members. So there is fairly consistent support. There's a little difference there, but fairly consistent. Uh, But it starts breaking down when we get further into gun policy here, gun control policy. So do you support a national gun registry where everybody has to get basically a a national gun license? So 79% of non-owners say yes, but it's only 42% of gun owners not in the NRA, and it drops down to 31% if we look at gun owners who are in the NRA itself. In fact, gun uh, gun owners in the NRA, NRA members, 57% of them strongly oppose a national gun registry, and that's much different than other gun owners. Uh, so you see, that's that's a real big gap there. I guess the thing that surprises me most is the support for background checks for all purchases um, that the NRA members are all the way up at sixty nine percent. That that surprises me because that's out sort of the orthodox. It's outside of the orthodoxy of the NRA. It's something that they are so strongly against. Mm-hmm. But that number is so very high that I think that 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 that's a that's a real surprise. My guess is that. NRA members realize with the rise in gun violence that they have to give something. And if you look mm-hmm. at the, the whole host of, of gun control issues that are possible, this is the one that's, that's least offensive to them. Um, and that's why you, know, you look at the gun registry one, and there we start seeing the huge difference start to pop up with the NRA members. And there's the question about why. So one of them is, are you worried that a national registry would be used to track citizens in the, uh, and their their movements in the United States. And 79% of NRA members say yes. Uh, that's a huge mm-hmm. difference from other people, including gun owners. And so it's only 55% of gun owners, 47% of non-owners who are both outside of the NRA 
say that they're worried about that. So this is a big kind of thing that is going on inside the NRA, which is saying background checks are okay uh, based on information that you already have about people, their criminal records or whatever that are collected elsewhere. But to add all of us onto a national gun registry, then we start worrying about the deep state. Uh, that's the, that seems <laughs> right. to be the problem. And in fact, one of the questions mm-hmm. that I followed up with is why do you own a gun? 46% of gun owners say that one of the reasons why they own a gun is to guard against government tyranny, including 23%, one in four go- gun owners who say that's a major reason why they yeah. own a gun, to protect themselves from the government. And it's one of the challenges of, of gun control is because any step forward by the government where they're asking for new new policies that would, would change the gun laws is just, to, it seems to me, to these people, it would be a step towards them taking control and more reason why you need to have these guns. Uh, yeah, so it's but this, sort of this is like the, circle. This is the, the, the Second Amendment run amok in the sense that, uh, you know, the original reason for the Second Amendment was worrying about foreign invasion, you know, British troops coming and, and your ability to have a gun if you needed it to protect yourself. Now we're seeing one in four Americans say, I basically, I own a gun to protect myself from the American government. And that's, that's a very different thing. Yeah, that is uh, really um, problematic. Now, th- we did get this week a few Republican leaders who are speaking out about this, but they tend to be on the outs with their party, like former Ohio Governor John Kasich, who said on TV this weekend, he said, now I hear all these thoughts and prayers. I mean, I, I can pray with the best of them, but, you know, prayer without action doesn't matter. So you want to get gun control legislation, begin to march for it, and you'll get it. Yeah, Do you think the, that's possible? Yeah, there's very few Republicans who, who are actually voicing that. They stop at the thoughts and prayers or they, they, they talk about other issues such as mental health, video games, whatever. But you have very few who say, yes, gun control legislation. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's really tough to get there. Uh, and I think a key part of that reason why it's becoming tough now is because uh, it's tied up in these, uh, this identity politics, which have... It's been driven by the president. Uh, for example, you know, we find that 63% of NRA members say that they trust Donald Trump a lot on gun policy, and they are taking their cues from him on a whole host of other things, which includes the other things that many people are saying that led up to the, this gun violence this past weekend, which is that the, at least the one shooter in El Paso was basically using Trump's own language in his manifesto about why he did it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of hard. And I did see something where on uh, there was some talk that this weekend was something of a changing point where because it's a different story. You, you rarely see the president's words being used so directly by by a by a killer and by by a terrorist in, in this country. Um, and it's really a first. I can't remember back to a time where President Bush or President Obama or President Clinton had ever, it was like, I'm using the president's vision of the country to help protect the country. And so much of what we've seen from President Trump over these last many years, even starting with his original campaign, was this idea that we need to be protected from this invasion. To then see a shooter use those words was is quite shocking and may take the independence and the 20% in the middle and sort of really make you look at the fabric of the nation and how it's shifting and how it's ripping and it could be a, a game changer for those for those voters in the middle i mean is that something that you could see possibly happening i think so and it's hard to tell how many of them are there but it does seem to turn off certain voters and one of the things that 
you and I had talked about, have talked about for a long time, is how much Trump supporters identify themselves with him. So if you're calling Trump a racist, you're calling them racist too. And mm -hmm. I think the link to that with the violence this weekend has provided some a wedge that you can kind of break in there and say, well, that's di what he's doing is different than you. So you can distance yourself from him. <laughs> All right. Um, and that's like, so did you, you heard, right? You heard what uh, George, George, this is George P. Bush, who's this, uh, Jeb Bush's son, who's a statewide office holder in Texas. I can't remember what title he has, but um, he said, I believe fighting terrorism remains a national priority. And that should include standing firm against white terrorism here in the U.S. Um, well, that's so, an interesting statement from Mr. Bush, who was really one of the first. Uh, one of the one of the shocking names to back President Trump yep. during the election, uh, coming from the fact that his that it was coming from his father, uh, and and to see him kind of now step out in this way is is, is certainly surprising and interesting. Yeah, and we see that from uh, or starting to see that from other people too. Uh, so remember uh, the president's tweet uh, when Elijah Cummings' house was, was robbed. One of the most that was one of the most disheartening moments I can remember as an American to see President Trump tweet about Elijah Cummings house being robbed and in this sort of sarcastic too bad way and it brought me back um, to you know Nazi Germany where you know it was sort of where where rocks were being sent through Jews homes uh, through windows um, and it really was sort of it was almost an encouragement against his political opponents. And then you were going to talk about Nikki Haley. Right. Did you you saw her response? You showed that to yes. me. Uh, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. To, so he, he tweets out Trump tweets out uh, too bad. Nikki Haley tweets out. This is so unnecessary. Uh, this yeah. is somebody who has been talked about in the past as a potential running mate for Donald Trump. Right. It's talked about in 2016. <laughs> and, and, again, Conway. 20, and then, yeah, Kellyanne Conway, what's she Kellyanne got? Conway comes back with, this is so unnecessary, Trump-Pence 2020, which I found so fascinating that Kellyanne Conway would put Mike Pence in that situation. Because what she's doing there, I mean, if you're going to replace the vice presidential candidate, which I, I imagine Trump could do at this point and get away with it, right. because he already has the evangelicals who he got through uh, Mike Pence. So now, you know, once you've bought in, you've bought in. So the idea that they would change out Haley for Pence is not something you should talk about. It's like if you're doing a TV show and you're going to think about replacing one of the main actors on the TV show with another actor, you don't discuss it. You either do it or you don't. And for Kellyanne Conway to say, this is so unnecessary, Trump Pence 2020, I wonder how Mike Pence felt in that moment. Yeah, I don't, well, you know, Kellyanne Conway, what does she care? And this has been the, the story of the Trump administration all along, is that they don't care, and Kellyanne Conway leads the way. I mean, she's the most Trump-like member of that administration, other than the president himself. Uh, but this is, this is the problem that you have if you're a Republican trying to do something or say something, right, is that uh, you're going to get stamped on um, if it's seen as disloyal to the president. But I think we're, you know, we're getting to the point where that, 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 that could be the inflection point. How much of an inflection point, I don't know. But we're hearing Republicans well, we say things. We see inflection points every week. Yeah, <laughs> we say, that's right. We yeah. say every week this is the inflection point. But yeah. this does feel different. It yeah. definitely has a different feel to it. And one thing that I wanted to put, and we're going to talk about the debate later, but there was one moment that I thought was very important for the Democrats, which was when Mayor Pete Buttigieg was talking about Republicans during this time. We have to be ready to take on this president. And by the way, something that hasn't been talked about as much tonight, take on his enablers in Congress. 
You know, when, when David Duke, when David Duke ran for Congress, or ran for governor, the Republican Party 20 years ago ran away from him. Today, they are supporting naked racism in the White House, or at best silent about it. And if you are watching this at home, and you are a Republican member of Congress, consider the fact that when the sun sets on your career, and they are writing your story of all the good and bad things you did in your life, the thing you will be remembered for is whether in this moment with this president, you found the courage to stand up to him or you continue to put party over country. Thank you, that was deeply, that was, not only was it something, and it didn't get much press coverage, but I think it's a missed opportunity for the Democrats because I think instead of talking about, we've talked oftentimes on the show about that Trump is what Trump is and that, you know, we know who he is. It's not going to change anything. However, if you can start calling out the Senate and the Congress people in, in, from the Republican side and use exactly that language, that's the kind of thing I think that could move the needle really powerfully, in not only in the presidential race, but also in the Senate and also in the House races, yeah. really putting out these very, this very stark idea that party over country is, is what's going on in the Republican Party right now. I think that there's a, a lot of movement that can happen there. Yeah, well, you got to get more Republicans uh, to say that. And in fact, uh, I think we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to uh, our guardian of the week. But uh, let's turn to last week's debate uh, and just in a sentence or two. What do you think was the big uh, takeaway from that? You know, I think Biden survived and opportunities were missed. I think that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, I look at this as uh, one, uh, you know, what Booker talked about, Cory Booker talked about uh, the one person enjoying this is Trump. And everybody kind of, you know, said that as well and then went and piled on each other. You know, Trump is the one who's benefiting from this. And now let me go after you. Uh, so that, that was the first thing that I, that I thought about. There were, yeah. The other thing was the identity politics that continues to come out of this, that there is this sense that that Trump is not the existential threat that he is, that that they're just having, you know, this kind of walk in the park, like it's it's a, an entirely different time where they can argue over who's right. got the most uh, socialist uh, uh, health care policy or, or environmental well, policy. Then. Right. And if you yes, look back, but that, that that's the point. That's that's you that you make. I think the direct point is that they're they're arguing as if this is 2004. Right. And they're having an argument about the future of the country when really the existential question is the future of the republic. And that might be a different that might be an interesting viewpoint to bring is like we can talk about the future of the country and how we're going to handle different policies. But the issue at hand is the future of the republic and whether we will have a republic moving forward. And I think that that's why I was talking about the missed opportunity. The, this friendly fire between the Democrats was a, was a wasted opportunity to show how they could go after um, President Trump. Yeah, I think one of the key things that I, I saw with this, if we're comparing what they're talking about today versus what Bernie Sanders was talking about four years ago, which is pretty much the same thing. But back then, Sanders made a, a clear attempt to distance himself from the identity politics that, that were tied up in right now if you remember he was more he, of a he, populist he, yeah it was right like, he wouldn't take the, the bite on the black lives stuff. matters he was pushing the same policies but saying these same pol these policies are going to help everybody and i'm not going to get into the, you know the, the uh, different groups different constituency groups which is why his policy was kind of seen as for everyone his populism was for everyone but now you take the same exact policies that he was talking about then and each of these candidates uh, are talking about it in a way that it makes it sound like, at least it appears to, that those middle voters that we've been talking about, 
that, oh, that's just for a certain special interest group that the Democrats are concerned with. You know, they're pandering to these groups. So it's changed. What's unfortunate is the ones who are in the center who are not having those conversations, they're the ones who aren't able to move the move the marker at all. I mean, you know, Amy Klobuchar is not looking at identity politics at all. Um, She's really speaking to the center constantly. And there's there's just no movement for her in any of these polls. It seems like everything is stuck. Anyone who's going down the centrist lane, the center lane, is going to, you know, tie on to Joe Biden as much as they can because they think that, you know, he's he's the one who can survive and he's the one who can beat Donald Trump. But I, I do think it's a, a challenging situation. All right, but let's we want to take some a look at some of the individual moments of these two nights. And there's a lot to cover, so we're going to do it in an extended hot take segment. So we're going to play a clip or two and then have 90 seconds to discuss them. When you hear this drum... It's time to move on to the next clip. So how about we kick it off with Marianne Williamson. I have to say, I have a, I'm normally way over there with Bernie and Elizabeth on this one. I hear the others, and I, I have some concern about that as well. And I do have concern about what the Republicans would say, and that's not just a Republican talking point. I do have concern that it will be difficult. I have concern that it will make it harder to win. And I have concern that it will make it harder to govern. Now, I really like that uh, clip because it was Williamson responding to this back and forth on health care, uh, health care policy mm-hmm. that was going on. And to me, she came off as the Greek chorus. Uh, and anybody who <laughs> has has followed uh, you know, ancient theater knows that the role of the Greek chorus in, in, in a Greek play is to stand off to the side and basically be the, the conscience of the, of the audience and tell you what's really going on on stage. Yeah. And I think she served that role really well right there. She did. She surprised me, too, because one of my my complaints with her in the first round of debates was that if she was going to come with this message of of love and understanding and talking about the toxicity, that if you're going to do that, you need to come with a top-level presence, which I did not feel that she had. Mm -hmm. When she came back on on the second week, on the second debate, she really did bring that presence along with her. And you kind of saw, it was like, well, wait a minute here. There is something to be said for someone who is bringing these ideas and kind of finding a way to bring it to the centers though and i will say that her her answer on reparations which personally i think is a challenging political right standpoint to take was the best explanation of how and why reparations should be a a, a a future for, for in, in America, that it's something that needed to happen. Again, I, I was not necessarily swayed completely, but I thought that her communication at the time was really yeah. kind of A+. Plus. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think her before. communication is good, but I still, I don't, I didn't see her as a presidential candidate. What I did is I saw her up there as a, a useful voice uh, to, to, uh, to offset everything else that was going on. All right, let's turn to some of the other candidates who needed to bust out. And I've got a couple of clips I want to play for you here. Uh, The first one's going to be Kirsten Gillibrand talking about how she would win Michigan. And the next one is from uh, will be from Beto O'Rourke's opening statement to the people of Michigan. um, I know exactly how I beat President Trump. I've already done it. I took a bus tour to talk about Trump's broken promises here in Michigan. I'm running for president because I believe that America discovers its greatness at its moments of greatest need. This moment will define us forever. And I believe that in this test, America will be redeemed. 
You know, the the major issue I have with Beto is there's absolutely, when he's in doing these debates, no dynamic in his voice, right? So right. even just as you hear, as I'm bringing a certain different tone and different sound, what it does is hopefully engage the audience's ear. When Beto is on that stage in the debate world, he fails miserably. Yeah, it almost now, sounds like he, he's he done. Like he knows he's done. Right, but... But then you look at what he did yesterday when he had right. his, you know, with the press, the WTF moment that he had. That's a place, and he, we saw it also with the Kaepernick during the Senate, where he was modulating his voice. And it's almost like he's got to learn how to free himself. And I think yeah, he's but, sort of getting there because he, he's, he's sort of like— I mean, he, he'll be on this—he has qualified for this stage in, in September. He's got another shot, but his standing in the polls is really, really bad right now. So yeah, it's going to yeah. take a lot to make it and up in this crowded field for him. However, what he's doing now with the El Paso shooting and everything that's happening there, to me, is would put him in such a strong position. Okay, quick. We were right spending a lot now. on Beto. How about Gillibrand? How about Gillibrand? Right. Uh, but right just there. let me say this. That there's this that there's this moment that he could really beat Cornyn right now if he keeps that energy. For me, Gillibrand, her main problem, one of her main problems, is that she blinks constantly. And from yeah, an acting kind of a world, contact lens first things, problem or whatever. But yes, it, it is whatever, what you do notice. You, can, you, you cannot blink. Yeah. When you're trying to get points across, right. and you'll see that with some of the other candidates. But I, I liked her. Know. I liked her answer. How would you win Michigan? I, I've done it. I've taken a bus tour. What does that mean? I have no <laughs> idea. That was absurd. I'm sorry. Right. I'm not a fan. All right, there are others we can talk about too, Castro and so forth. But um, but next we have Amy Klobuchar, yep. who is, as you say, trying to carve out her lane. Let's get real. Tonight we debate, but ultimately we have to beat Donald Trump. My background, it's a little different than his. I stand before you today as a granddaughter of an iron ore miner, as a daughter of a union teacher and a newspaper man, as a first woman elected to the U.S. Senate from the state of Minnesota and a candidate for president of the United States. And yes, I will make some simple promises. I can win this. I'm from the Midwest and I have won every race, every place, every time. You know, here's an example. If we go back to Nixon-Kennedy and the Nixon-Kennedy debates, when you're watching on television, people thought that Kennedy won the debate. If you're listening on the radio, it sounded Mm -hmm. like Nixon won the debate. For me, with Klobuchar, she is so much better on television than she is just hearing her audibly because what she does, which is the exact opposite of what Gillibrand does, is she keeps her eyes crystal clear and strong and it's she's very powerful on that stage and i i keep waiting for her to pop up in the in the polls a little bit but it's just not happening yeah i i don't agree with you in terms of how she comes off um well i agree that yeah she does she's right there in the camera she's in the moment but i think the content of what she's saying is what's lacking uh so that sounded very pedestrian her appeal to the center lane Agreed. it was like you know okay here let me tick off all the things that uh the your, your typical pundit or strategist says why i should be uh doing better <laughs> right <laughs> i mean the that's, and that's how it, and the daughter and, and the cousin yeah, and yeah. the and that how that's how it comes off like like you like you can kind of removed. add these up like throw them in the shopping cart it oh does. i've got a presidential candidate yeah. here right uh, no, so that's a, that is a, that that's, is that's what I think, I think that, that, that hurts her that, that she doesn't. However, she, she doesn't does, spark, but she does. No, she doesn't spark, but she does have a great presence on camera. She really does. It's just that she, as you say, it is rather yeah. I mean, the, take the, the take her going. Take the what she did in the Kavanaugh hearings. Entirely different. Yeah. 
entirely different. Radical centrist, man. She's got to come forward. She's got to have, she's got to add a little bit of Elizabeth Warren to her team. Yeah, okay. So let's um, move on. Um, so we've got uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who we've already heard from once, but, um, you know, obviously he wants you to vote for him for president. So how's he sound here? I'm running for president because our country is running out of time. It is even bigger than the emergency of the Trump presidency. Ask yourself how somebody like Donald Trump ever gets within cheating distance of the Oval Office in the first place. It doesn't happen unless America is already in a crisis. No, it's good. It's great stuff. Buttigieg has, when I was talking about the dynamics in the voice and referencing Beto, you could hear it just in the way he uses the word cheating. Right. And, you know, he it's not, yeah, that, that sticks with you. Cheating distance, it absolutely sticks with you and holds you. My my issue with him, first of all, he speaks quickly and clearly. Fantastic. That's really what you want to do. Um, but but my issue with him this night was he looked young. He looked scared. Uh, he did not look. There was one moment I wanted to talk about with Bullock where he got into an exchange. He didn't have the best night on night one, but he yeah. did have one moment where he turned on Bernie in an executive space. As an executive, we talked about this on the phone. Was as governor, he he is the executive, and with Pete, I just see I see his youth kind of hurting yeah, him. Yeah, I think this the way. thing about when you listen it. to what he has to say, and I've I've seen him at rallies where he's gotten eight hundred people to show up on a Friday morning. Uh, people like listening to him, but when when you walk away from it and you ask, okay, exactly what did he say he was going to do? There's not an answer there. He's, he's very good at speaking in the, in the generalities and speaking in this kind of uh, t- the times that we live in now. Uh, but I'm wondering if he is really somebody that people are going to end up paying close attention to, giving more consideration to other than he just seems like a fresh face of the new generation. And, and one other point that, that was great on Pete's part was when he was talking about socialism and how no matter what happens, the, the Republicans are going to talk about it, whatever policy it was, being socialist, whether they did Medicare for all or, or just made a small adjustment. I thought that was really smart on Mayor Pete's part. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, now the big battle of the night was supposed to be between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. How do you think that panned out for Bernie? Well, yeah, I don't have a clip here for Bernie, uh, but I think, you know, if, you, if you've heard Bernie once, you've heard him a thousand times, right? And that's what he's doing. He's, he continues to play towards, to his base, and he continues to hold on to that 10% or so, 15% at most of the Democratic electorate. I have to say, though, been with him. He, was, he was, but he was strong. I mean, yeah. he had a much stronger uh, second debate than he did his first mm-hmm. debate, where he sort of came in and was sort of just doing it. He realized it was like, hey, I'm down here. I'm slipping in the, in the polls, and I really need to, to punch out here. And I thought that it was really effective on his part. I, I thought he had a much better debate. He stayed on his path of talking about the things that he spoke about, but he did it. You know, he sort of played. There was this moment but he, where but he, wrote, he had, wrote he had, the he had damn his pal. Yeah, he had, that, that was a good one. I wrote the damn bill. But he had his pal, Elizabeth. Elizabeth standing next to him, giving him uh, support yeah, and there. Right? How far did we get? How far did we get till the one and a half touches that we talked about last week came? Yeah, it was, it was it was when they walked on stage, right? You said you said <laughs> right. last week was going to be one and a half. As soon as they walked on stage, she's, she's patting his back, right? Um, yeah, of course, because they yeah. and they and they were looking at each other through the whole debate. I mean, they were engaging each other like they were like the Wonder Twin powers activating, <laughs> yes. fighting against all of these centrists. <laughs> I, it was it was it was it was actually not ideal in a way for it would have been a better split up. I know we were talking about we wanted right. to see Bernie versus Warren on the same stage, but I would almost rather have Warren on one night and Bernie on. Well, another that's why night I think it hurt then, Bernie. Because of that, How I think so? it, because Warren is the one with momentum. Warren is the one that Democrats 
who haven't fully decided or taking a second look at. So it doesn't, get, you know, you, you when you look at the two of them, Warren is the one that you would go to if you were still haven't decided on a liberal candidate. Yet. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Uh, so, you know, sticking with Warren, um, she really seemed to be uh, hitting her stride in this. And there was an exchange with uh, Congressman Delaney that who I had a good was, night. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he did. He did. He, he improved. But um, I thought that Warren really showed why she's picking up steam here. Congressman Delaney, your response. <laughs> so, I, so I think Democrats win when we run on real solutions, not impossible promises. When we run on things that are workable, not fairy tale economics. You know, I don't understand why anybody goes to all the trouble of running for president of the United States just to talk about what we really can't do and shouldn't fight for. (laughs) And we need to have the courage to fight back against that. And until we're ready to do that, it's just more of the same. Well, I'm ready to get in this fight. I'm ready to win this fight. Thank you, Senator Congressman Delaney. Yeah, that's pretty strong stuff yeah. right there. Yeah, she's, and if you can't she's hear, she's a fantastic yeah, communicator. You can't hear it uh, as much on the audio as you can see it because uh, Jake Tapper stepped on her there. But she's, I'm ready to get into this fight. I'm ready to win this fight, and her voice mm-hmm. goes down in a way that when you're watching, you said, you, you, it stuck with you. You, you, she drew you in to listen to her saying that. Yeah, and she also she talked about the wealth tax, and mm-hmm. you know, Delaney was talking. Someone mentioned that he was 65, was worth 65 million dollars. And Tapper said to Delaney, you would be subject to the wealth tax. And it it was in a split screen. And Elizabeth Warren literally was rubbing her her hands hands together together. like a nine-year-old who was ready for her dessert. And I was just like, you know, she's just, she's absolutely sure of her place in this race. It's similar in a way to Donald Trump. Like there's, there's, there's no like, well, maybe, maybe not. She's just like a, a steamroller, just steamrolling whatever gets in her way. And, and she believes, she believes that her position is the position that's going to beat Donald Trump. So we keep talking about, she believes that, but she really does believe that this is going to beat Donald Trump. In fact, she's, she name checked Trump more than any other candidate over the two nights. If you listen to her opening statement in the first 30 seconds there, she names Trump four times. She is ready to go for Trump, and she would be. Th- those would be some fantastic debates. It would be an incredibly entertaining six months. But there are still the problems where she's going to be asked questions about her health care plan and taxes, and she's got to find a better way of doing that than just sort of you know hedging and saying, well, you know, the overall cost. No, you're going to have to answer that question yep. and stand there because until you answer it, until you land it, it ain't gonna. It's never going to go away. But uh, okay, she's so on the rise. We, Warren's on the rise. Yeah, she, yeah, I say Warren and Harris both. I think it's going to end with those two, and it's going to be a decision between a center, a centrist Harris, which is kind of funny, versus mm-hmm. the liberal wing with with Warren. Okay. Um, but before we move on to the other main camp candidates on the second night, I w- we want to take a look at the moderators, particularly Jake Tapper. Senator Warren, you make it a point to say that you're a capitalist. Is that your way of convincing voters that you might be a safer choice than Senator Sanders? No, it is my way of talking about I know how to fight and I know how to win. And it got even worse on night two. Donald Trump won independence here in Michigan by 16 percentage points, which was critical to Donald Trump winning the state's 16 electoral votes. Now there is a big debate within the Democratic Party here and around the country about the best way that Democrats can win back Michigan. Vice President Biden, last night on this stage, Senator Elizabeth Warren said, quote, we're not going to solve the urgent problems that we face with small ideas and spinelessness. We're going to solve them by being the Democratic Party of big structural 
change. What do you say to progressives who worry that your proposals are not ambitious enough to energize the progressive wing of your party, which you will need to beat Donald Trump? You know, I, I actually gave Jake Tapper a shout out in the first 20 minutes of the first night because he was really moderating that debate really well and it was substantive, it was about health care. When we got to the second mm-hmm. night, uh, and we got later in the first night, but when we got to the second night particularly, it was, just, it was clear, oh, let's make this go on longer because we've got a food fight starting here. The first night it didn't yeah. work that much because we heard that, that first question that he, that he posed to Elizabeth Warren. She just kind of batted it away. She got out of it, and that yeah. was impressive. And, and yeah. that's something that, that Warren shows. That's a political, there's some political genius going on there because what yeah. she doesn't want to do is get into the food fight with Bernie, and she just, she closed that door. No, that's not right. what it means. What it means is, I'm going to kick Donald Trump's butt. Right. You know, that was some excellent work on her part, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, so, so, so the first night, first night it didn't work for them. They, the, the, they couldn't, the, the moderators couldn't stir the pot as much as they would like, but the second they had plenty of opportunity, and uh, they used it. That, they, that second question that I played from Tapper, that like 40-second question about winning Michigan, it was so convoluted. Yeah. Was the question about appealing to the base? Was it appealing to independence? Was it, they were trying to, like, he's trying to throw in as much in there as possible to say, start fighting. Yeah, so Joe, Joe, you know, Vice President Biden, Elizabeth Warren took what could be construed as a shot at you. Would you now like to take a shot back at her and yeah. start a whole big war? And you know, it's a, yeah. It, I don't want to. I don't want to let the, the, you know. We shouldn't feeling. let the other. We're, we're focusing on Tapper, but even Dana Bash. I mean, her opening question to Harris was was that quite what you said was Joe Biden has said all these mean things about you. Go right. <laughs> no, not good. That's okay. right. All right, let's not turn to good. let's 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 turn away from the moderators and go back to the main event and uh, the interchange that everyone was looking forward to, which was between Harris and Biden. And uh, what did you make about that? Well, I don't have any clips here. You know, I, we all saw it, right? I, we yeah, we saw it. And one of the things that was sort of strange was "Take It Easy on Me, Kid." Was the Joe Biden with Kamala Harris? And you, you kind of wondered. I wondered when I saw that. I was like, well, "Is that really what you want to be saying to to a woman of such stature, calling her kid?" I, I I wasn't a huge fan of that. But what I did think was that Biden came out very strong, and I thought Harris was it was bad luck for her to be on the stage again with with Joe Biden. And the reason was she already won that fight, right? And what she was trying to do was win the fight again. Right. Well, we'd already seen her win that fight. And and what ended up happening for me from Harris was she, she had less less of a good night as far as I was concerned. And she was trying to use the same sort of blueprint exactly. that she used in the first debate. Yeah, we already, we, already, we already saw that. Uh, you know, there's no surprise there. Any, the, the curtain had been drawn back on that first one. Biden was caught off guard. It was new. This time it wasn't. I thought I actually thought Biden's, um, you know, uh, go easy on me, kid, was really smart for him in that moment, because it does. You know, if somebody comes up to you and you're like you're itching for a fight and somebody who's nice old guy, (laughs) right, says that to you, it puts that thought in the back of your head. Oh, maybe I shouldn't go hard on him and maybe it just like throws maybe. Off. It's, it's it's you know it's like a great uh, kind of like the, the reverse boxing trick you know like the boxers try to out uh, don't hurt my face yeah don't don't hurt don't hurt me yeah. um yeah and unfortunately for kamala harris uh she she really you know she what worked for her the first night it was like a baseball pitcher who threw really great and she's like all right i'm gonna do the same thing I do think that it didn't work for her, and but Biden over the course of the evening is she, he was great for the first I yep. would say ninety minutes of the debate, but then he really started to slow down, and it's one of the fears of his age sort of coming out there at the end. All right, yeah, but I think we want to 
to do a little bit more on Harris's performance, right? Okay, yeah. So there's one more question about Detroit, where she started off sort of in her normal, matter-of-fact voice, but then she got to here. He betrayed the American people. He betrayed American families. And he will lose this election because folks are clear that he has done nothing except try to beat people down instead of lift people up. And that's what we want in the next president of the United States. And then there was this here with her closing statement. What we need is someone who is going to be on that debate stage with Donald Trump and defeat him by being able to prosecute the case against four more years. And let me tell you, we've got a long rap sheet. Yeah, I think she was thrown (laughs) off uh, by that exchange with Biden that I think she sensed that it wasn't playing all that well. And that's why we got those answers, you know, early on with her, that kind of that that her where her voice was going up um, because it wasn't where she normally is winning the debate. Uh, her closing statement, obviously, which was the last thing that we just heard, was rehearsed, right? So she was able to at least get back to that a little bit. You know, there was an interesting little moment that happened at the top of the debate in her opening statement. Um, and it's going to sound s- silly, but I know, I know, I know exactly did, what you're going to say. Go ahead. The microphone kind of went, and oh, yeah. it, it, as a performer, when something like that happens, it throws you off your equilibrium. And what ended up happening for her was her voice was so quiet at the top. And she was like, I'm going to come in with this district attorney and I'm going to prosecute. But it wasn't, like we said just earlier, it just did not have that, that same level of strength. Right. Um, and she missed and it. She you really notice that, what that you... at the end of her opening statement, she missed her last line, which was prosecute the case against Donald Trump. She said prosecute the case for Donald Trump, caught herself, and, and then she said and against Donald Trump. And then she had a, she laughed at her sake. But the problem is, it was the, the very last thing that she said. So that you, you kind of left that with the, the yeah. Back but of that your mind. that I, I argue that that happened from the beginning, where right. her microphone went, and it just throws that whole thing off because you get into a certain rhythm, especially in those rehearsed sections. It was a tough night for Kamala Harris. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't her best. Um, but uh, unlike in the first round of debates last month, uh, Harris was not Biden's main combatant. That was Cory Booker this time. And here's an exchange that actually starts off with Bill de Blasio calling out Biden on those deportation orders under Obama. And then we hear Booker pick up the ball. I guarantee you, if you're debating Donald Trump, he's not going to let you off the hook. So did you say those deportations were a good idea? Or did you go to the president and say, this is a mistake, we shouldn't do it? Which one? I was vice president. I am not the president. I keep my recommendation in private. Unlike you, I expect you would go ahead and say whatever was said privately with him. Senator Booker, please respond. Well, a couple (laughs) things. First of all, Mr. Vice President, you can't have it both ways. You invoke President Obama more than anybody in this campaign. You can't do it when it's convenient and then dodge it when it's not. And the second thing, and this really irks me because I I heard the Vice President say that. If you got a PhD, you can come right into this country. Well, that's playing into what the Republicans want, to pit some immigrants against other immigrants. Some are from shithole countries and some are from worthy countries. Yeah, I you know I I didn't I didn't like that. Um, and I, I, what I didn't like is when he said that you invoke President Obama's mm-hmm. name more than anyone else. He has every right to invoke President yes. Obama's name because nobody else worked as closely with President Obama. And I didn't see him sort of pushing it away in that way. I thought that was disingenuous on on Cory Booker's part. Yeah, it was it was practice. Really good night, including his reference to to shithole countries. There, he he just did that again um, you know, recently 
uh, about the, the shootings. Uh, some One of his staff members tweeted out that he said bullshit to something or whatever. But it, it sounds, unlike the uh, Beto uh, moment that you brought up earlier, it sounded rehearsed and didn't sound like it was authentic there. Yeah, and it was also, it's like he was, sque- he, like you're saying, it was rehearsed, and he was squeezing in this idea and saying, you know, here, here's my opportunity to take a shot against Biden uh, for using Obama. You don't have the right to do that, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah and I think that's not did. a... Well, that was the big thing that came out of the debate from Democrats, right? It was, was it seemed like that everybody was dissing Obama. Uh, Man, and yeah. Yeah, but what are you doing? What are you doing? The, 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 and that's why I'm going to go back I mean, to Everybody's talking about like, like the Affordable Care Act, like Obamacare was a failure rather than it's yeah. the stepping stone on what you can even talk about Medicare that, for that all you can, that, So you can build onto something else. It's, it's, a, it's a problematic situation in the Democratic Party because if we counted up how many shots that were taken at President Obama versus President Trump, I think it would be closer than you would ever imagine. Yeah. I thought Biden so, handled that also, well, though. Yeah, I thought Biden handled himself well until he got tired. All right, well, Cory Booker clearly had a strategy going into this debate, and it was a little different than the way he was positioning himself before in terms of the debate. So let's listen to his answer on how he would win Michigan. This is one of those times where we're not staring at the truth and calling it out. And this is a case for the Democratic Party, the truth will set us free. We lost the state of Michigan because everybody from Republicans to Russians were targeting the suppression of African-American voters. We need to say that. Yeah, so I, I, good. I, I, it was good, except that it, it, it doesn't ring true. He got four Pinocchios from the Washington Post for that answer because there's no evidence that that was actually what caused, caused it. Although, well, obviously, there are problems with the Russians uh, trying to uh, interfere. Yeah, with, but he, just with bringing elections. up the idea of the Russians, how many times? How many times did we hear Russia and Russians? Over the course of the two nights, but that Not wasn't enough. That wasn't the, that wasn't enough. what he was saying. He was saying black voter suppression. That was the message that he was getting out there. In fact, I, I, a reporter that I know was who was sitting in the audience uh, tweeted that uh, the, the, the there was a couple of black people sitting next to them who just really cheered for that. Cory Booker needs to find a lane where he can do well. And I just had a poll from Monmouth out in South Carolina, which is one of the states he has to do well in, and he's down there at the bottom of the pack still. You know, voters yeah. like him, they just aren't with him. So now he's trying a you new know, tactic, but- and that tactic is voter suppression, voter suppression. If you want to get rid of voter suppression, you've got to be with me. And it's a, it's a, it's a real straight message to black voters. Well, also, what, one of the things that came out of that night for me was seeing Booker for the first time as a really strong vice presidential opportunity and mm-hmm. option. Um, that was not something that I saw before Wednesday night because I never felt that he was a good enough communicator. He, we, we've been pointing out some of his missteps, but right after the debate, you and I spoke and we agreed that Booker had a fantastic night and that he really presented himself. We, we're, we're getting at some of his weaker spots, but overall, he, he was very strong and it really put him in position, I thought. The first time we're looking back at this, this young star of the Democratic Party that ran for mayor of Newark, it was like, yeah, well, there he is. And he's sort of growing into himself. So I was impressed by that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he did have a good night and it's clear that he had a strategy going into that night. Yeah. Now, in the end, though, every candidate talked about the need to defeat Trump. How did the front runner do in doing that? I'm running for president to restore the soul of this country. You know, uh, we have a president, as everybody's acknowledged here, every day is ripping into the social fabric of this country. 
But no one man has the capacity to rip that apart. It's too strong. We're too good. And we are strong and great because of this diversity, Mr. President. Not, not in spite of it, Mr. President. So, Mr. President, let's get something straight. We love it. We are not leaving it. We are here to stay, and we're certainly not going to leave it to you. <laughs> yeah, now, obviously, that was from his opening statement and not his closing statement. So when he still had all that energy. But you listen yeah. to that's that's the message. That's the message. Yeah, you, that, know, you can say it in different message. ways. Other candidates can say it in different ways. But that is the central message for Democrats in 2020. Yeah, but the the reality is that Biden has the most right to that message. Uh, it's the most obvious fit for him. I did have a moment in the closing argument where I thought to myself, what we need as a candidate in the Democratic Party or what is needed for the Democratic Party is Barack Obama. <laughs> Barack Obama <laughs> needs to come out of retirement and say, you know what? The Constitution's getting twisted left and right. So I'm going to come back and let's just make this a question of the soul of this nation because that's the most effective argument the Democrats have to, right. I believe, get to that 20%. And, Bi and that's why Biden is so exciting as a candidate, if he is exciting. Yeah, I, I think he that's, can speak that, to that's, that in that way better than anybody. Right, and that's what gets those, those, those folks in the center. And that's, I think, where you're able to drive that wedge in on racism and separate uh, people from Donald Trump by saying, we're not calling you racist, we're calling Donald Trump racist, and you don't want to be associated with him. You can be associated with me. You know, I, I, this is about the soul of, of the country. And that has I don't think to others, be the argument. Yeah, I, because others are, when they're saying about the soul of the country, well, it's the soul of the country for this particular special interest group or that particular special interest that group. Won't That's work. what it's coming that out. That won't work because then there's too many reasons why those independents will say, well, you're, you're just changing everything too much. Right. I'm just going to stick with the status quo and we'll th keep things going. All right. So, well, that was a lot. <laughs> that was something that was a lot of fun. Um, and we're going to have to do that again after the September de debate. But now we're going to wrap up this episode with our guardian of the week, someone who has looked beyond their short term political interests to uphold the values of the republic. But before we get to this week's honoree, I have an update on someone we named as a betrayer of the Republic just a few weeks ago, and that's uh, Shoykat Chakrabarti, and he earned that dubious distinction for throwing gasoline on the fire of Democratic infighting as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez outspoken chief of staff. Well, guess what? He's now left her office. He's left government employee. He's working for a climate change advocacy group. And I think that is a much more appropriate outlet for his particular brand of talents. What do you think? Yeah, that was, I, I, I do, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, uh, I, I'm somewhat surprised that that he left her her employee, uh, but it does seem like what he wants to do is, is I think AOC does enough throwing fire herself. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's a more appropriate for her to do it as the elected representative rather than her chief of staff. Yeah, and she's accountable. Um, if she does it and she gets into trouble yeah, for it, exactly. she has to be accountable to her constituents, to her fellow colleagues about this. He didn't. Uh, and I think this makes a lot more sense. All right, yeah, let's, let's move to our guardian for this week. Uh, and I'm not sure we have a, an absolutely clear standout but the Twitter account of a Nebraska state legislator caught my eye this weekend. And apparently I wasn't alone, as his tweets have now hit the national media. Uh, he is State Senator John McAllister from Omaha. He's a Republican. His father was a Republican congressman. And he had a lengthy tweet thread in reaction to this weekend's events, uh, which he is now pinned to his profile. And I'm going to give it a little read here. It's a, it's a little lengthy, so bear with me, but it's important to read. He says... 
The Republican Party is enabling white supremacy in our country. As a lifelong Republican, it pains me to say this, but it's the truth. I, of course, am not suggesting that all Republicans are white supremacists, nor am I saying that the average Republican is even racist. What I am saying, though, is that the Republican Party is complicit to obvious racist and immoral activity inside our party. We have a Republican president who continually stokes fears in his base. He calls certain countries shitholes, tells women of color to go back to where they came from, and lies more than he tells the truth. We have Republican senators and representatives who look the other way and say nothing for fear that it will negatively affect their elections. No more. When the history books are written, I refuse to be someone who said nothing. The time is now for us Republicans to be honest with what is happening inside our party. We are better than this, and I implore my Republican colleagues to stand up and do the right thing. We all like to cite Abraham Lincoln's Republican lineage when it is politically expedient, but now is the time to act like Lincoln and take a stand. You know, I don't understand why there aren't more Republicans who are choosing to make their name. But you know what? You know what happened. So this is exactly what Pete Buttigieg said. This is how, this is how you would judge, and this is what exactly. this guy is saying, right? You know what happened to uh, right after the day after he he posted this, the Nebraska what happened? The Nebraska Republican Party sent out a press release telling him to leave the party. So that's why he gets Guardian of the Week honors because he's putting his own political future at risk to say the right say and do the right thing. You know, but the question I have is, if you look at Heard in Texas, right, mm-hmm. who also retired this week and, and could have been considered for guardian of the republic, what would stop Heard from moving over to the Democratic Party and running as a Democrat in that, and getting gaining that seat and being able to speak out against what he sees as the problems of this country? Because that seems to be why he retired at the time, was that he didn't want to answer these questions anymore. Why, why would he not, why would these Republicans who are outraged by this not say, okay, you know what? You're probably right. I'm probably not a good Republican because I'm not willing to sit down and watch our Republic be torn apart in this way. So I guess I'm going to go join the Democratic Party. Why, why is that more of that not happening? And why wouldn't the Democrats welcome that? Well, this is, I've had this conversation recently uh, here in New Jersey where I live because we've had a number of Republican leaders who have been tweeting out uh, Islamophobic comments. And one of the things that I say when I talk to Republicans who I know, these moderate Republicans who are leaders in the party here, they're all sticking their head in the sand. And the reason why they don't leave is, is they're, they're Republican, they're not Democrats, but they hope that this will all just go away and vanish if Donald Trump is uh, defeated in 2020. And that's not it. That's not what's going to happen. There's just no way that... Uh, they can get the party back unless they fight for it. It's not going to just come snap back to them without Donald Trump has put his mark on this party. So right now we have a Democratic Party and we have a Trump Party. The Republican Party, as we know, it does not exist and it might disappear into the ether unless people who really want to be Republicans try to take back their party. Well, that very well may be the case. But what also might end up happening is that we may say goodbye to the Republican Party as we've known it for all these years. And it might just turn into a full Trump party, which if, if that's if people keep their heads in the in the sand for that long, I think that's probably what's going to end up happening. Yeah, well, the the republic needs a Republican Party, a true Republican Party. And so John McAllister for trying to fight for his party uh, here, the guardian of the week. 
All right. So that's it for this week's edition of the Guardians of the Republic. And next week, we're going to have a special episode. Is that right? Yes, I am headed to the Iowa State Fair for the requisite Des Moines Register candidate soapbox. We're going to see a whole bunch of now, what do you presidential candidates that? out there. Uh, well, I think it's, it's going to be interesting because I did it four years ago when it was really the Republicans there. And, and you, you get you know a handful, uh, you know, a few dozen folks who show up. I have a feeling that this is going to be really crowded this time. Uh, and so I will be also traveling yeah. around the state uh, to different places where different candidates will be having these events, talking to voters like I did in New Hampshire, finding out what is important to them, finding about whether these candidates really are talking about the issues that matter to them in a way that that resonates. And uh, we'll see what happens. So we're, we're, we'll have that in our special edition next week. Until then, please do subscribe to get the latest episodes and please give us a rating in iTunes or your favorite podcast app so others can find us and check out our website at guardians-republic.com or on Twitter at guardians OTR. And thank you for joining us. And we're going to be back next week. See ya.